Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, and to find out how you could volunteer please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Prisoner of Zender by Anthony Hope Chapter 1 The Rassendils With a Word on the Elfbergs "'I wonder when in the world you're going to do anything, Rudolph,' said my brother's wife. "'My dear Rose,' I answered, laying down my egg-spoon. "'Why in the world should I do anything? "'My position is a comfortable one. "'I have an income nearly sufficient for my wants. "'No one's income is ever quite sufficient, you know. "'I enjoy an enviable social position. "'I'm brother to Lord Burlesdon, "'and brother-in-law to that most charming lady, his countess. "'Behold, it's enough.' "'You are nine-and-twenty, she observed, "'and you've done nothing but knock about.' "'It's true. Our family doesn't need to do things.' This remark of mine rather annoyed Rose, for everybody knows, and therefore there can be no harm in referring to the fact, that pretty and accomplished as she herself is, her family is hardly of the same standing as the Rassendils. Besides her attractions, she possessed a large fortune, and my brother Robert was wise enough not to mind about her ancestry.' Ancestry is, in fact, a matter concerning which the next observation of Rose's has some truth. "'Good families are generally worse than any other,' she said. Upon this I stroked my hair. I knew quite well what she meant. "'I'm so glad Roberts is black,' she cried. At this moment Robert, who rises at seven and works before breakfast, came in. He glanced at his wife. Her cheek was slightly flushed. He patted it caressingly. "'What's the matter, my dear?' he asked. "'She objects to my doing nothing, and having red hair,' said I, in an injured tone. "'Oh, of course he can't help his hair,' admitted Rose. "'It generally crops out once in a generation,' said my brother. "'So does the nose. Rudolph's got them both.' "'I wish they didn't crop out,' said Rose, still flushed. "'I rather like them myself,' said I and rising I bowed to the portrait of Countess Amelia. My brother's wife uttered an exclamation of impatience. "'I wish you'd take that picture away, Robert,' said she. "'My dear,' he cried. "'Good heavens!' I added. "'Then it might be forgotten,' she continued. 
"'Hardly, with Rudolph about,' said Robert, shaking his head. "'Why should it be forgotten?' I asked. "'Rudolph!' exclaimed my brother's wife, blushing very prettily. I laughed and went on with my egg. At least I'd shelved the question of what, if anything, I ought to do. And by way of closing the discussion, and also, I must admit, of exasperating my strict little sister-in-law a trifle more, I observed, I rather like being an Elfberg myself. When I read a story, I skip the explanations, yet the moment I begin to write one, I find that I must have an explanation, for it is manifest that I must explain why my sister-in-law was vexed with my nose and hair, and why I ventured to call myself an Elfberg. For eminent, as I must protest, the Rassendils have been for many generations, yet participation in their blood, of course, does not, at first sight, justify the boast of a connection with the grander stock of the Elfbergs, or a claim to be one of that royal house. For what relationship is there between Ruritania and Burlesdon, between the palace at Strelsau, or the castle of Zender, and number 305 Park Lane, West One? Well, then, and I must premise that I am going, perforce, to rake up the very scandal which my dear Lady Burlesdon wishes forgotten. In the year 1733, George II, sitting then on the throne, peace reigning for the moment, and the King and the Prince of Wales being not yet at loggerheads, there came on a visit to the English court a certain prince, who was afterwards known to history as Rudolf III of Ruritania. The prince was a tall, handsome young fellow, marked, may be marred, it's not for me to say, by a somewhat unusually long, sharp and straight nose, and a mass of dark red hair. In fact, the nose and the hair, which have stamped the Elfbergs time out of mind. He stayed some months in England, where he was most courteously received, yet in the end he left rather under a cloud, for he fought a duel, it was considered highly well-bred of him to waive all question of his rank, with a nobleman, well known in the society of the day, not only for his own merits, but as the husband of a very beautiful wife. In that duel Prince Rudolf received a severe wound, and, recovering therefrom, was adroitly smuggled off by the Ruritanian ambassador, who had found him a pretty handful. The nobleman was not wounded in the duel, but the morning being raw and damp on the occasion of the meeting, he contracted a severe chill and failing to throw it off, he died some six months after the departure of Prince Rudolf, without having found leisure to adjust his relations with his wife, who, after another two months, bore an heir to the title and estates of the family of Burlesdon. This lady was the Countess Amelia, whose picture my sister-in-law wished to remove from the drawing-room in Park Lane, and her husband was James, fifth Earl of Burlesdon, and twenty-second Baron Rassendil, both in the peerage of England and a knight of the garter. As for Rudolf, he went back to Ruritania, married a wife and ascended the throne, whereon his progeny in the direct line have sat from then till this very hour, with one short interval. And finally, if you walk through the picture galleries at Burlesdon, among the fifty portraits or so of that last century and a half, you'll find five or six including that of the sixth earl, distinguished by long, sharp, straight noses, and a quantity of dark red hair. These five or six have also blue eyes, whereas among the Rassendils dark eyes are the commoner. That is the explanation, and I am glad to have furnished it. The blemishes on honourable lineage are a delicate subject, 
and certainly this heredity we hear so much about is the finest scandal-monger in the world. It laughs at discretion, and writes strange entries between the lines of the peerages. It will be observed that my sister-in-law, with a want of logic that must have been peculiar to herself, since we are no longer allowed to lay it to the charge of her sex, treated my complexion almost as an offence for which I was responsible, hastening to assume from that external sign inward qualities of which I protest my entire innocence. And this unjust inference she sought to buttress by pointing to the uselessness of the life I had led. Well, be that as it may, I had picked up a good deal of pleasure and a good deal of knowledge. I had been to a German school and a German university, and spoke German as readily and perfectly as English. I was thoroughly at home in French, I had a smattering of Italian, and enough Spanish to swear by. I was, I believe, a strong, though hardly a fine, swordsman and a good shot. I could ride anything that had a back to sit on, and my head was as cool a one as you could find, for all its flaming cover. If you say that I ought to have spent my time in useful labour, I am out of court and have nothing to say, save that my parents had no business to leave me two thousand pounds a year and a roving disposition. The difference between you and Robert, said my sister-in-law, who often, bless her, speaks on a platform, and often as still as if she were on one, is that he recognises the duties of his position, and you only see the opportunities of yours. To a man of spirit, my dear Rose, I answered, opportunities are duties. Nonsense, said she, tossing her head. And after a moment she went on, now, there's Sir James Borrowdale offering you exactly what you might be equal to. A thousand thanks, I murmured. He's to have an embassy in six months, and Robert says he's sure that he'll take you as an attaché. Do take it, Rudolph, to please me. Now, when my sister-in-law puts the matter in that way, wrinkling her pretty brows, twisting her little hands, and growing wistful in the eyes, all on account of an idle scamp like myself, for whom she has no natural responsibility, I am visited with a compunction. Moreover, I thought it possible that I could pass the time in the position suggested with some tolerable amusement. Therefore, I said, "'My dear sister,' If, in six months' time, no unforeseen obstacle has arisen, and Sir Jacob invites me, hang me if I don't go with Sir Jacob. Oh, Rudolph, how good of you! I am glad. Where's he going to? He doesn't know yet, but he's sure to get a good embassy. Madame, said I, for your sake I'll go, if it's no more than a beggarly legation. When I do a thing, I don't do it by halves. My promise, then, was given. But six months are six months, and seem an eternity, and inasmuch as they stretched between me and my prospective industry, I suppose attachés are industrious, but I know not, for I never became attaché to Sir Jacob or to anybody else. I cast about for some desirable mode of spending them, and it occurred to me suddenly that I would visit Ruritania. It may seem strange that I had never visited that country yet, but my father— in spite of a sneaking fondness for the Elfbergs, which led him to give me his second son, the famous Elfberg name of Rudolph, had always been averse from my going, and, since his death, my brother, prompted by Rose, had accepted the family tradition which taught that a wide berth was to be given to that country. But the moment Ruritania had come into my head, I was eaten up with curiosity to see it. After all, Red hair and long noses are not confined to the house of Elfberg, 
and the old story seemed a preposterously insufficient reason for debarring myself from acquaintance with a highly interesting and important kingdom, one which had played no small part in European history, and might do the like again under the sway of a young and vigorous ruler, such as the new king was rumoured to be. My determination was clinched by reading in the Times that Rudolf V was to be crowned at Strelsau in the course of the next three weeks, and that great magnificence was to mark the occasion. At once I made up my mind to be present, and began my preparations. But inasmuch as it has never been my practice to furnish my relatives with an itinerary of my journeys, and in this case I anticipated opposition to my wishes, I gave out that I was going for a ramble in the Tyrol, an old haunt of mine, and propitiated Rose's wrath by declaring that I intended to study the political and social problems of the interesting community which dwells in that neighbourhood. Perhaps, I hinted darkly, there may be an outcome of the expedition. "'What do you mean?' she asked. "'Well,' said I carelessly, "'there seems to be a gap that might be filled by an exhaustive work on—' "'Oh, will you write a book?' she cried clapping her hands. That would be splendid, wouldn't it, Robert? It's the best of introductions to political life nowadays, observed my brother, who has, by the way, introduced himself in this manner several times over. Burlesden on ancient theories and modern facts, and the ultimate outcome by a political student, are both works of recognised eminence. I believe you're right, Bob, my boy, said I. Now, promise you'll do it said Rose earnestly. No, I won't promise, but if I find enough material, I will. That's fair enough, said Robert. Oh, material doesn't matter, she said, pouting. But this time she could get no more than a qualified promise out of me. To tell the truth, I would have wagered a handsome sum that the story of my expedition that summer would stay no paper and spoil not a single pen. And that shows how little we know what the future holds. For here I am, fulfilling my qualified promise, and writing, as I never thought to write, a book, though it will hardly serve as an introduction to political life, and has not a jot to do with the Tyrrell. Neither would it, I fear, please Lady Burlesdon, if I were to submit it to her critical eye, a step which I have no intention of taking. End of chapter 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, and to find out how you could volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Prisoner of Zender by Anthony Hope Chapter 2 Concerning the Colour of Men's Hair it was a maxim of my uncle William's that no man should pass through Paris without spending four-and-twenty hours there. My uncle spoke out of a ripe experience of the world, and I honoured his advice by putting up for a day and a night at the Continental, on my way to the Tyrol. I called on George Featherly at the Embassy, and we had a bit of dinner together at Durand's, and afterwards dropped into the opera, and after that we had a little supper, and after that we called on Bertram Bertrand, a versifier of some repute, and Paris correspondent to the critic. 
He had a very comfortable suite of rooms, and we found some pleasant fellows smoking and talking. It struck me, however, that Bertram himself was absent and in low spirits, and when everybody except ourselves had gone, I railed him on his moping preoccupation. He fenced with me for a while, but at last, flinging himself on a sofa, he exclaimed, "'Oh, very well, have it your own way. I am in love, infernally in love.' "'Oh, you'll write the better poetry,' said I, by way of consolation. He ruffled his hair with his hand and smoked furiously. George Featherly, standing with his back to the mantelpiece, smiled unkindly. "'If it's the old affair,' said he, "'you may as well throw it up, Bert. She's leaving Paris to-morrow.' "'I know that,' snapped Bertram. "'Not that it would make any difference if she stayed,' pursued the relentless George. "'She flies higher than the paper-trade, my boy.' "'Hang her,' said Bertram. "'It would make it more interesting for me,' I ventured to observe, "'if I knew who you were talking about.' "'Antoinette Maubin,' said George. "'De Maubin,' growled Bertram. "'Oh, ho!' said I, passing by the question of the de. "'You don't mean to say, Bert. Can't you let me alone?' "'Where's she going to?' I asked, for the lady was something of a celebrity.' George jingled his money, smiled cruelly at poor Bertram, and answered pleasantly, "'Nobody knows. By the way, Bert, I met a great man at her house the other night, at least about a month ago. Did you ever meet him, the Duke of Strelsau?' "'Yes, I did,' growled Bertram. "'An extremely accomplished man, I thought him.' It was not hard to see that George's references to the Duke were intended to aggravate poor Bertram's sufferings, so that I drew the inference that the Duke had distinguished Madame de Maubin by his attentions. She was a widow, rich, handsome, and, according to repute, ambitious. It was quite possible that she, as George put it, was flying as high as a personage who was everything he could be, short of enjoying strictly royal rank for the Duke was the son of the late King of Ruritania, by a second and morganatic marriage, and half-brother to the new King. He had been his father's favourite, and it had occasioned some unfavourable comment when he had been created a Duke, with a title derived from no less a city than the capital itself. His mother had been of good, but not exalted birth. "'He's not in Paris now, is he?' I asked. "'Oh, no! He's gone back to be present at the King's coronation.' ceremony which i should say he'll not enjoy much but bert old man don't despair he won't marry the fair antoinette at least not unless another plan comes to nothing still perhaps she he paused and added with a laugh royal attentions are hard to resist you know that don't you rudolph confound you said i and rising i left the hapless bertram in george's hands and went home to bed the next day George Featherly went with me to the station, where I took a ticket for Dresden. "'Going to see the pictures?' asked George, with a grin. George is an inveterate gossip, and had I told him that I was off to Ruritania, the news would have been in London in three days, and in Park Lane in a week. I was, therefore, about to return an evasive answer, when he saved my conscience by leaving me suddenly and darting across the platform.' Following him with my eyes, I saw him lift his hat and accost a graceful, fashionably dressed woman who had just appeared from the booking-office. 
She was perhaps a year or two over thirty, tall, dark, and of rather full figure. As George talked, I saw her glance at me, and my vanity was hurt by the thought that, muffled in a fur coat and a neck wrapper, for it was a chilly April day, and wearing a soft travelling hat pulled down to my ears, I must be looking very far from my best. A moment later George rejoined me. "'You've got a charming travelling companion,' he said. "'That's poor Bert Bertrand's goddess, Antoinette de Maubin. "'And like you, she's going to Dresden, also, no doubt, to see the pictures. "'It's very queer, though, that she doesn't at present desire the honour of your acquaintance.' "'I didn't ask to be introduced,' I observed, a little annoyed. "'Well, I offered to bring you to her, but she said another time. "'Never mind, old fellow. Perhaps there'll be a smash, "'and you'll have the chance of rescuing her and cutting out the Duke of Strelsau.' "'No smash, however, happened, either to me or to Madame de Maubin. "'I can speak for her as confidently as for myself, "'for when, after a night's rest in Dresden, I continued my journey, "'she got into the same train. "'Understanding that she wished to be let alone, I avoided her carefully.' but I saw that she went the same way as I did to the very end of my journey, and I took opportunities of having a good look at her when I could do so unobserved. As soon as we reached the Ruritanian frontier, where the old officer who presided over the custom-house favoured me with such a stare that I felt surer than before of my Elfberg physiognomy, I bought the papers, and found in them news which affected my movements— for some reason, which was not clearly explained, and seemed to be something of a mystery, the date of the coronation had been suddenly advanced, and the ceremony was to take place on the next day but one. The whole country seemed in a stir about it, and it was evident that Strelsau was thronged. Rooms were all let, and hotels overflowing. There would be very little chance of my obtaining a lodging, and I should certainly have to pay an exorbitant charge for it. I made up my mind to stop at Zender, a small town fifty miles short of the capital, and about ten from the frontier. My train reached there in the evening. I would spend the next day, Tuesday, in a wander over the hills, which were said to be very fine, and in taking a glance at the famous castle, and go over by train to Strelsau on the Wednesday morning, returning at night to sleep at Zender. Accordingly, at Zender I got out, and as the train passed where I stood on the platform— I saw my friend Madame de Maubin in her place. Clearly she was going through to Strelsau, having, with more providence than I could boast, secured apartments there. I smiled to think how surprised George Featherly would have been to know that she and I had been fellow travellers for so long. I was very kindly received at the hotel. It was really no more than an inn, kept by a fat old lady and her two daughters. They were good, quiet people and seemed very little interested in the great doings at Strelsau. The old lady's hero was the Duke, for he was now under the late king's will, master of the Zender estates, and of the castle which rose grandly on its steep hill at the end of the valley, a mile or so from the inn. The old lady, indeed, did not hesitate to express regret that the Duke was not on the throne instead of his brother. "'We know Duke Michael,' said she. "'He has always lived among us.' "'Every Ruritanian knows Duke Michael. "'But the king is almost a stranger. "'He has been so much abroad. "'Not one in ten knows him, even by sight.' "'And now,' chimed in one of the young women, "'they say he has shaved off his beard, "'so that no one at all knows him.' "'Shaved his beard?' exclaimed her mother. "'Who says so?' "'Johann, the duke's keeper. "'He has seen the king.' 
"'Ah, yes. The king, sir, is now at the duke's hunting-lodge in the forest here. From here he goes to Threlsau to be crowned on Wednesday morning.' I was interested to hear this, and made up my mind to walk next day in the direction of the lodge, on the chance of coming across the king. The old lady ran on garrulously. "'Ah, and I wish he would stay at his hunting. That and wine, and one thing more, are all he loves,' they say, "'and suffer our duke to be crowned on Wednesday.' "'That I wish, and I don't care who knows it.' "'Hush, mother!' urged the daughters. "'Old as many to think as I do,' cried the old woman, stubbornly. I threw myself back in my deep armchair, and laughed at her zeal. "'For my part,' said the younger and prettier of the two daughters, a fair, buxom, smiling wench, "'I hate Black Michael. A red Elfberg for me, mother. The king, they say, is as red as a fox, or as—' and she laughed mischievously, as she cast a glance at me, and tossed her head at her sister's reproving face. "'Many a man has cursed their red hair before now,' muttered the old lady, and I remembered James, fifth Earl of Burlesdon. "'But never a woman!' cried the girl. "'Aye, and women, when it was too late,' was the stern answer, reducing the girl to silence and blushes. "'How comes the king here?' I asked, to break an embarrassed silence. "'It's the Duke's land here, you say?' "'The Duke invited him, sir, to rest here till Wednesday. "'The Duke is at Strelsau, preparing the King's reception. "'Then they're friends.' "'None better,' said the old lady. "'But my rosy damsel tossed her head again. "'She was not to be repressed for long, and she broke out again. "'Aye, they love one another as men do who want the same place and the same wife.' "'The old woman glowered but the last words pricked my curiosity, and I interposed before she could begin scolding. "'What, the same wife, too? How's that, young lady?' "'All the world knows that Black Michael—well, then, mother, the Duke—would give his soul to marry his cousin, the Princess Flavia, and that she is to be the Queen.' "'Upon my word,' said I, "'I begin to be sorry for your Duke. But if a man will be a younger son, why, he must take what the elder leaves, and be as thankful to God as he can.' and thinking of myself, I shrugged my shoulders and laughed. And then I thought also of Antoinette de Maubin and her journey to Strelsau. "'It's little dealing Black Michael has with—' began the girl, braving her mother's anger. But as she spoke, a heavy step sounded on the floor, and a gruff voice asked in a threatening tone, "'Who talks of Black Michael in his highness's own borough?' The girl gave a little shriek, half of fright, half, I think, of amusement. "'You'll not tell of me, Johann,' she said. "'See where your chatter leads,' said the old lady. The man who had spoken came forward. "'We have company, Johann,' said my hostess, and the fellow plucked off his cap. A moment later he saw me, and to my amazement he started back a step, as though he had seen something wonderful. "'What ails you, Johann?' asked the elder girl. "'This is a gentleman on his travels. Come to see the coronation.' The man had recovered himself, but he was staring at me with an intense, searching, almost fierce glance. "'Good evening to you,' said I. "'Good evening, sir,' he muttered, still scrutinising me. And the merry girl began to laugh as she called. "'See, Johann, it is the colour you love. He started to see your hair, sir. It's not the colour we see most of here in Zender.' "'I, I crave your pardon, sir,' stammered the fellow, with puzzled eyes. I expected to see no one. 
"'Give him a glass to drink my health in, "'and I'll bid you good-night, "'and thanks to you ladies for your courtesy and pleasant conversation.' "'So speaking, I rose to my feet, "'and with a slight bow turned to the door. "'The young girl ran to light me on the way, "'and the man fell back to let me pass, "'his eyes still fixed on me. "'The moment I was by, he started a step forward, asking, "'Pray, sir, do you know our king?' "'I never saw him,' said I. I hope to do so on Wednesday. He said no more, but I felt his eyes following me till the door closed behind me. My saucy conductor, looking over her shoulder at me as she preceded me upstairs, said, There's no pleasing Master Johann for one of your colour, sir. He prefers yours, maybe, I suggested. I meant, sir, in a man, she answered with a coquettish glance. "'What?' asked I, taking hold of the other side of the candlestick. "'Does colour matter in a man?' "'Nay, but I love yours. It's the Elfberg red.' "'Colour in a man,' said I, "'is a matter of no more moment than that.' And I gave her something of no value. "'God send the kitchen door be shut,' said she. "'Amen,' said I, and left her. In fact, however, as I now know, colour is sometimes of considerable moment to a man.' End of chapter 2「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, and to find out how you could volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter THE PRISONER OF ZENDER by Anthony Hope CHAPTER Three: A MERRY EVENING WITH THE DISTANT RELATIVE I was not so unreasonable as to be prejudiced against the Duke's keeper, because he disliked my complexion, and if I had been, his most civil and obliging conduct, as it seemed to me to be, next morning would have disarmed me. Hearing that I was bound for Strelsau, he came to see me while I was breakfasting, and told me that a sister of his, who had married a well-to-do tradesman and lived in the capital, had invited him to occupy a room in her house. He had gladly accepted, but now found that his duties would not permit of his absence. He begged, therefore, that if such humble, though, as he added, clean and comfortable lodgings would satisfy me, I would take his place. He pledged his sister's acquiescence, and urged the inconvenience and crowding to which I should be subject in my journeys to and from Strelsau the next day. I accepted his offer without a moment's hesitation, and he went off to telegraph to his sister, while I packed up and prepared to take the next train. But I still hankered after the forest and the hunting lodge, and when my little maid told me that I could, by walking ten miles or so through the forest, hit the railway at a roadside station, I decided to send my luggage direct to the address which Johann had given, take my walk, and follow to Strelsau myself. Johann had gone off, and was not aware of the change in my plans, but as its only effect was to delay my arrival at his sister's for a few hours, there was no reason for troubling to inform him of it. Doubtless the good lady would waste no anxiety on my account. I took an early luncheon, and having bidden my kind entertainers farewell, promising to return to them on my way home, I set out to climb the hill that led to the castle, and thence to the forest of Zender. Half an hour's leisurely walking brought me to the castle, 
It had been a fortress in old days, and the ancient keep was still in good preservation, and very imposing. Behind it stood another portion of the original castle, and behind that again, and separated from it by a deep and broad moat, which ran all round the old buildings, was a handsome modern chateau, erected by the last king, and now forming the country residence of the Duke of Strelsau. The old and the new portions were connected by a drawbridge, and this indirect mode of access formed the only passage between the old building and the outer world. But, leading to the modern chateau, there was a broad and handsome avenue. It was an ideal residence. When Black Michael desired company, he could dwell in his chateau. If a fit of misanthropy seized him, he had merely to cross the bridge and draw it up after him. It ran on rollers, and nothing short of a regiment and a train of artillery could fetch him out. I went on my way, glad that poor Black Michael, though he could not have the throne of the princess, had at least as fine a residence as any prince in Europe. Soon I entered the forest, and walked on for an hour or more in its cool, sombre shade. The great trees enlaced with one another over my head, and the sunshine stole through in patches as bright as diamonds, and hardly bigger. I was enchanted with the place, and finding a felled tree-trunk, propped my back against it, and stretching my legs out, gave myself up to the undisturbed contemplation of the solemn beauty of the woods, and to the comfort of a good cigar. And when the cigar was finished, and I had, I supposed, inhaled as much beauty as I could, I went off into the most delightful sleep, regardless of my train to Strelsau, and of the fast waning afternoon. To remember a train in such a spot would have been rank sacrilege. Instead of that, I fell to dreaming that I was married to the Princess Flavia, and dwelt in the castle of Zender, and beguiled whole days with my love in the glades of the forest, which made a very pleasant dream. In fact, I was just impressing a fervent kiss on the charming lips of the Princess, when I heard, and the voice seemed at first a part of the dream, someone exclaim, in rough, strident tones, "'Why, the devil in it! Shave him, and he'd be the king!' The idea seemed whimsical enough for a dream. By the sacrifice of my heavy moustache and carefully pointed imperial, I was to be transformed into a monarch. I was about to kiss the princess again, when I arrived, very reluctantly, at the conclusion that I was awake. I opened my eyes, and found two men regarding me with much curiosity. Both wore shooting costumes and carried guns. One was rather short and very stoutly built, with a big bullet-shaped head, a bristly grey moustache, and small pale blue eyes, a trifle bloodshot. The other was a slender young fellow of middle height, dark in complexion, and bearing himself with grace and distinction. I set the one down as an old soldier, the other for a gentleman, accustomed to move in good society, but not unused to military life either. It turned out afterward that my guess was a good one. The elder man approached me, beckoning the younger to follow. He did so, courteously raising his hat. I rose slowly to my feet. "'He's a height, too,' I heard the elder murmur as he surveyed my six feet two inches of stature. Then, with a cavalier touch of the cap, he addressed me. "'May I ask your name?' "'As you seem to have taken the first step in the acquaintance, gentlemen,' said I, with a smile, "'suppose you give me a lead in the matter of names.' The young man stepped forward with a pleasant smile. "'This,' said he, "'is Colonel Sapt, 
and I am called Fritz von Talenheim. We are both in the service of the King of Ruritania. I bowed, and bearing my head answered, I am Rudolf Rassendil. I am a traveller from England, and once, for a year or two, I held a commission from Her Majesty the Queen. Then we are all brethren of the sword, answered Talenheim, holding out his hand, which I took readily. Rassendil, Rassendil, muttered Colonel Sapt. Then a gleam of intelligence flitted across his face. "'By heaven!' he cried. "'You're of the Burlesdons!' "'My brother is now Lord Burlesdon,' said I. "'Thy head betwayeth thee,' he chuckled, pointing to my uncovered poll. "'Why, Fritz, you know the story.' The young man glanced apologetically at me. He felt a delicacy which my sister-in-law would have admired. To put him at his ease, I remarked with a smile, "'Ah, the story is known here as well as among us, it seems.' "'Known?' cried Sapt. "'If you stay here, the deuce a man in all Ruritania will doubt of it, or a woman either.' I began to feel uncomfortable. Had I realised what a very plainly written pedigree I carried about with me, I should have thought long before I visited Ruritania. However, I was in for it now. At this moment a ringing voice sounded from the wood behind us. "'Fritz! Fritz! Where are you, man?' Tarlenheim started, and said hastily, "'It's the king!' Old Zapp chuckled again. Then a young man jumped out from behind the trunk of a tree, and stood beside us. As I looked on him, I uttered an astonished cry, and he, seeing me, drew back in sudden wonder. Saving the hair on my face, and a manner of conscious dignity which his position gave him, saving also that he lacked perhaps half an inch—nay, less than that, but still something—of my height— the king of Ruritania might have been Rudolf Rassendil, and I, Rudolf, the king. For an instant we stood motionless, looking at one another. Then I bared my head again, and bowed respectfully. The king found his voice, and asked in bewilderment, "'Colonel, Fritz, who is this gentleman?' I was about to answer, when Colonel Zapt stepped between the king and me, and began to talk to his majesty in a low growl. The king towered over Zapt, and as he listened, his eyes now and again sought mine. I looked at him long and carefully. The likeness was certainly astonishing, though I saw the points of difference also. The king's face was slightly more fleshy than mine, the oval of its contour the least trifle more pronounced, and as I fancied his mouth lacking something of the firmness, or obstinacy, which was to be gathered from my close-shutting lips. But for all that, and above all minor distinctions, the likeness rose, striking, salient, wonderful. Zapt ceased speaking, and the king still frowned. Then, gradually, the corners of his mouth began to twitch. His nose came down, as mine does when I laugh. His eyes twinkled, and, behold, he burst into the merriest fit of irrepressible laughter, which rang through the woods and proclaimed him a jovial soul. "'Well met, cousin,' he cried, stepping up to me, clapping me on the back, and laughing still. "'You must forgive me if I was taken aback. A man doesn't expect to see double at this time of day. Eh, Fritz?' "'I must pray pardon, sire, for my presumption,' said I. "'I trust it will not forfeit your majesty's favour. "'By heaven, you'll always enjoy the king's countenance,' he laughed, "'whether I like it or not. "'And, sir, I shall very gladly add to it what services I can. 
"'Where are you travelling to?' "'To Strelsau, sire, to the coronation.' The king looked at his friends. He still smiled, though his expression hinted some uneasiness. But the humorous side of the matter caught him again. "'Fritz! Fritz!' he cried. "'A thousand crowns for a sight of Brother Michael's face when he sees a pair of us!' And the merry laugh rang out again. "'Seriously,' observed Fritz von Tarlenheim, "'I question Mr. Rassendil's wisdom in visiting Strelsau just now.' The king lit a cigarette. "'Well, Zapt,' said he, questioningly. "'He mustn't go,' growled the old fellow. "'Come, Colonel, you mean that I should be in Mr. Rassendil's debt, if—' "'Oh, I wrap it up in the right way,' said Zapt, hauling a great pipe out of his pocket. "'Enough, sir,' said I. "'I'll leave Ruritania to-day.' "'Now, by thunder, you shan't, and that's sans phrase, as Sapp likes it. "'If you shall dine with me to-night, happen what will afterwards. "'Come, man, you don't meet a new relation every day.' "'We dine sparingly to-night,' said Fritz von Tarlenheim. "'Not we, with our new cousin for a guest,' cried the king. "'And as Fritz shrugged his shoulders, he added, "'Oh, I'll remember our early start, Fritz.' "'So will I, to-morrow morning.' said old Sapt, pulling at his pipe. "'Oh, wise old Sapt!' cried the king. "'Come, Mr. Rassendil. By the way, what name did they give you?' "'Your Majesty's,' I answered, bowing. "'Well, that shows they weren't ashamed of us,' he laughed. "'Come then, Cousin Rudolph. I've got no house of my own here, but my dear brother Michael lends us a place of his, and we'll make shift to entertain you there.' and he put his arm through mine, and, signing to the others to accompany us, walked me off, westerly, through the forest. We walked for more than half an hour, and the king smoked cigarettes and chattered incessantly. He was full of interest in my family, laughed heartily when I told him of the portraits with the Elfberg hair in our galleries, and yet more heartily when he heard that my expedition to Ruritania was a secret one. "'You have to visit your disreputable cousin on the sly, have you?' said he. Suddenly emerging from the wood, we came on a small and rude hunting-lodge. It was a one-story building, a sort of bungalow, built entirely of wood. As we approached it, a little man in a plain livery came out to meet us. The only other person I saw about the place was a fat elderly woman, whom I afterwards discovered to be the mother of Johann, the Duke's keeper. "'Well, is dinner ready, Joseph?' asked the King. The little servant informed us that it was, and we soon sat down to a plentiful meal. The fare was plain enough. The king ate heartily, Fritz von Tarlenheim delicately, old Zapp voraciously. I played a good knife and fork, as my custom is. The king noticed my performance with approval. "'We're all good trenchermen, we Elfbergs,' said he. "'But what? We're eating dry. Wine, Joseph, wine, man. Are we beasts to eat without drinking?' "'Are we cattle, Joseph?' At this reproof, Joseph hastened to load the table with bottles. "'Remember to-morrow,' said Fritz. "'Aye.' "'To-morrow,' said old Zapt. The king drained a bumper to his cousin Rudolph, as he was gracious, or merry enough to call me, and I drank its fellow to the Elfberg Red, whereat he laughed loudly. "'Now be the meat what it might.' The wine we drank was beyond all price or praise, and we did it justice. Fritz ventured once to stay the king's hand. "'What?' cried the king. "'Remember, you start before I do, Master Fritz. 
"'You must be more sparing by two hours than I.' Fritz saw that I did not understand. "'The Colonel and I,' he explained, "'leave here at six. We ride down to Zender, and return with the guard of honour, to fetch the King at eight, and then we all ride together to the station.' "'Hang that same guard,' growled Sapt. "'Oh, it's very civil of my brother to ask the honour for his regiment,' said the King. "'Come, cousin, you need not start early. Another bottle, man.' I had another bottle, or rather a part of one, for the larger half travelled quickly down His Majesty's throat. Fritz gave up his attempts at persuasion. From persuading he fell to being persuaded, and soon we were all of us as full of wine as we had any right to be. The King began talking of what he would do in the future. Old Zapt of what he had done in the past, Fritz of some beautiful girl or other, and I of the wonderful merits of the Elfberg dynasty. We all talked at once, and followed to the letter Zapt's exhortation to let the morrow take care of itself. At last the King set down his glass, and leant back in his chair. "'I have drunk enough,' said he. "'Far be it from me to contradict the King,' said I. Indeed, his remark was most absolutely true, so far as it went. While I yet spoke, Joseph came and set before the king a marvellous old wicker-covered flagon. It had lain so long in some darkened cellar that it seemed to blink in the candlelight. His Highness the Duke of Strelsau bade me set this wine before the king when the king was weary of all other wines, and pray the king to drink for the love that he bears his brother." "'Well done, Black Michael,' said the King. "'Out with the cork, Joseph. Hang him. Did he think I'd flinch from his bottle?' The bottle was opened, and Joseph filled the King's glass. The King tasted it. Then, with a solemnity born of the hour, and of his own condition, he looked round on us. "'Gentlemen, my friends, Rudolph, my cousin. "'Tis a scandalous story, Rudolph, on my honour. "'Everything is yours, to the half of Ruritania, "'but ask me not for a single drop of this divine bottle, "'which I will drink to the health of that, that sly knave, "'my brother Black Michael.' "'And the king seized the bottle, "'and turned it over his mouth, and drained it, "'and flung it from him, "'and laid his head on his arms on the table. "'And we drank pleasant dreams to his majesty. "'And that is all I remember of the evening.' Perhaps it is enough. End of chapter 3「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, and to find out how you could volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Prisoner of Zender by Anthony Hope Chapter 4 The King Keeps His Appointment Whether I had slept a minute or a year I knew not. I awoke with a start and a shiver. My face, hair, and clothes dripped water, and opposite me stood old Zapt, a sneering smile on his face, and an empty bucket in his hand. On the table by him sat Fritz von Talenheim, pale as a ghost, and black as a crow under the eyes. I leapt to my feet in anger. "'Your joke goes too far, sir,' I cried. 
"'Tut, man, we've no time for quarrelling. Nothing else would rouse you. It's five o'clock.' "'I'll thank you, Colonel Sapt,' I began again, hot in spirit, though I was uncommonly cold in body. "'Rassendil,' interrupted Fritz, getting down from the table and taking my arm. "'Look here!' The king lay full length on the floor. His face was red as his hair, and he breathed heavily. Zapt, the disrespectful old dog, kicked him sharply. He did not stir, nor was there any break in his breathing. I saw that his face and head were wet with water, as were mine. "'We've spent half an hour on him,' said Fritz. "'He drank three times what either of you did,' growled Zapt. I knelt down and felt his pulse. It was alarmingly languid and slow. We three looked at one another. "'Was it drugged?' "'That last bottle?' I asked in a whisper. "'I don't know,' said Zapt. "'We must get a doctor. "'There's none within ten miles, "'and a thousand doctors wouldn't take him to Strelsau to-day. "'I know the look of it. "'He'll not move for six or seven hours yet.' "'But the coronation!' I cried in horror. "'Fritz shrugged his shoulders, "'as I began to see was his habit on most occasions. "'We must send word that he's ill,' he said. "'I suppose so,' said I. Old Zapt, who seemed as fresh as a daisy, had lit his pipe, and was puffing hard at it. "'If he's not crowned to-day,' said he, "'I'll lay a crown he's never crowned.' "'But heavens, why? The whole nation's there to meet him. Half the army, ay, and Black Michael at the head. Shall we send word that the king is drunk?' "'That he's ill,' said I, in correction. "'Ill,' echoed Zapt, with a scornful laugh. "'They know his illnesses too well. He's been ill before.' "'Well, we must chance what they think,' said Fritz, helplessly. "'I'll carry the news and make the best of it.' Zapt raised his hand. "'Tell me,' said he, "'do you think the king was drugged?' "'I do,' said I. "'And who drugged him?' "'That damned hound Black Michael,' said Fritz, between his teeth. "'Aye,' said Zapt that he might not come to be crowned. Rassendil here doesn't know our pretty Michael. What think you, Fritz? Has Michael no king ready? Has Strelsau no other candidate? As God's alive man, the throne's lost if the king shows himself not in Strelsau to-day. I know, Black Michael. We could carry him there, said I. And a very pretty picture he makes, sneered Zapt. Fritz von Tarlenheim buried his face in his hands. The king breathed loudly and heavily. Zapt stirred him again with his foot. "'The drunken dog,' he said, "'but he's an Elfberg, and the son of his father. "'And may I rot in hell before Black Michael sits in his place?' For a moment or two we were all silent. Then Zapt, knitting his bushy grey brows, took his pipe from his mouth, and said to me, "'As a man grows old, he believes in fate.' "'Fate sends you here. Fate sends you now to Strelsau.' I staggered back, murmuring, "'Good God!' Fritz looked up with an eager, bewildered gaze. "'Impossible,' I muttered. "'I should be known.' "'It's a risk, almost a certainty,' said Zapt. "'If you shave, I'll wager you'll not be known. Are you afraid?' "'Sir?' "'Come, lad, there, there. But it's your life, you know, if you're known, and mine.' "'And Fritz is here. "'But if you don't go, "'I swear to you Black Michael will sit to-night on the throne, "'and the king lie in prison.' 
Always grave.' "'The king would never forgive it,' I stammered. "'Are we women? Who cares for his forgiveness?' The clock ticked fifty times, and sixty, and seventy times, as I stood in thought. Then I suppose a look came over my face, for old Zapt caught me by the hand, crying, "'You'll go.' "'Yes, I'll go,' said I and I turned my eyes on the prostrate figure of the king on the floor. "'Tonight,' Zapt went on in a hasty whisper, "'we are to lodge in the palace. The moment they leave us, you and I will mount our horses. Fritz must stay there and guard the king's room, and ride here at a gallop. The king will be ready, Joseph will tell him, and he must ride back with me to Strelsau. And you ride as if the devil were behind you to the frontier.' I took it all in in a second, and nodded my head. "'There's a chance,' said Fritz, with his first sign of hopefulness. "'If I escape detection,' said I. "'If we're detected,' said Zapt, "'I'll send Black Michael down below before I go myself, so help me heaven. Sit in that chair, man.' I obeyed him. He darted from the room, calling, "'Joseph! Joseph!' In three minutes he was back, and Joseph with him. The latter carried a jug of hot water, soap, and razors. He was trembling, as Zapp told him how the land lay, and bade him shave me. Suddenly Fritz smote on his thigh. "'But the guard! They'll know! They'll know!' "'Pooh! We shan't wait for the guard. We'll ride to Hofbau, and catch a train there. When they come, the bird'll be flown.' "'But the king! The king will be in the wine-cellar. I'm going to carry him there now. If they find him—' "'They won't. How should they? Joseph will put them off. "'But—' Zapp stamped his foot. "'We're not playing,' he roared. "'My God, don't I know the risk? "'If they do find him, he's no worse off than if he isn't crowned to-day in Strelsau.' "'So speaking, he flung the door open, and stooping, put forth a strength I did not dream he had, "'and lifted the king in his hands. "'As he did so, the old woman, Johann, the keeper's mother, stood in the doorway.' For a moment she stood, then she turned on her heel, without a sign of surprise, and clattered down the passage. "'Has she heard?' cried Fritz. "'I'll shut her mouth,' said Zapt grimly, and he bore off the king in his arms. For me I sat down in an armchair, and as I sat there, half-dazed, Joseph clipped and scraped me, till my moustache and imperial were things of the past, and my face was as bare as the king's. And when Fritz saw me thus, he drew a long breath, and exclaimed, "'By Jove, we shall do it!' It was six o'clock now, and we had no time to lose. Zapt hurried me into the king's room, and I dressed myself in the uniform of a colonel of the guard, finding time, as I slipped on the king's boots, to ask Zapt what he had done with the old woman. "'She swore she'd heard nothing,' said he, "'but to make sure I tied her legs together "'and put a handkerchief in her mouth and bound her hands "'and locked her up in the coal-cellar next door to the king. "'Joseph will look after them both later on.' "'Then I burst out laughing, and even old Zapt grimly smiled. "'I fancy,' said he, "'that when Joseph tells them the king is gone, "'they'll think it's because we smelt a rat.' "'for you may swear Black Michael doesn't expect to see him in Strelsau to-day.' "'I put the king's helmet on my head. "'Old Zapt handed me the king's sword, looking at me long and carefully. "'Thank God he shaved his beard!' he exclaimed. "'Why did he?' 
I asked. "'Because Princess Flavia said he grazed her cheek "'when he was graciously pleased to give her a cousinly kiss. "'Come, though, we must ride. "'Is all safe here?' "'Nothing's safe anywhere,' said Zapt. "'But we can make it no safer.' "'Fritz now rejoined us, in the uniform of a captain "'in the same regiment as that to which my dress belonged. "'In four minutes Zapt had arrayed himself in his uniform. "'Joseph called that the horses were ready.' We jumped on their backs and started at a rapid trot. The game had begun. What would the issue of it be? The cool morning air cleared my head, and I was able to take in all Zapp said to me. He was wonderful. Fritz hardly spoke, riding like a man asleep. But Zapt, without another word for the king, began at once to instruct me most minutely in the history of my past life, of my family, of my tastes, pursuits, weaknesses, friends, companions, and servants. He told me the etiquette of the Ruritanian court, promising to be constantly at my elbow to point out everybody whom I ought to know, and give me hints with what degree of favour to greet them. "'By the way,' he said, "'you're a Catholic, I suppose?' "'Not I,' I answered. "'Lord, he's a heretic,' groaned Zapt, and forthwith he fell to a rudimentary lesson in the practices and observances of the Romish faith. "'Luckily,' said he, "'you won't be expected to know much, "'for the king's notoriously lax and careless about such matters. "'But you must be as civil as butter to the cardinal. "'We hope to win him over, "'because he and Michael have a standing quarrel about their precedence.' "'We were by now at the station. "'Fritz had recovered nerve enough to explain to the astonished station-master "'that the king had changed his plans. "'The train steamed up, we got into a first-class carriage, and zapped.' Leaning back on the cushions, went on with his lesson. I looked at my watch. The King's watch, it was, of course. It was just eight. I wonder if they've gone to look for us, I said. I hope they won't find the King, said Fritz, nervously. And this time it was Zapt who shrugged his shoulders. The train travelled well, and at half-past nine, looking out of the window, I saw the towers and spires of a great city. Your capital, my liege! grinned old Sapt, with a wave of his hand. And leaning forward, he laid his finger on my pulse. "'A little too quick,' said he, in his grumbling tone. "'I'm not made of stone,' I exclaimed. "'You'll do,' said he, with a nod. "'We must say Fritz here has caught the ague. Drain your flask, Fritz, for heaven's sake, boy.' Fritz did as he was bid. "'We're an hour early,' said Sapt. "'We'll send word forward of Your Majesty's arrival, "'for there'll be no one here to meet us yet. "'And meanwhile—' "'Meanwhile,' said I, "'the King'll be hanged if he doesn't have some breakfast.' "'Old Zapp chuckled and held out his hand. "'You're an Elfberg, every inch of you,' said he. "'Then he paused, and looking at us, said quietly, "'God send we may be alive to-night.' "'Amen,' said Fritz von Talenheim. "'The train stopped.' Fritz and Zapp leapt out, uncovered, and held the door for me. I choked down a lump that rose in my throat, settled my helmet firmly on my head, and, I'm not ashamed to say it, breathed a short prayer to God. Then I stepped on that platform of the station at Strelsau. A moment later all was bustle and confusion, men hurrying up, hats in hand, and hurrying off again, men conducting me to the buffet men mounting and riding in hot haste to the quarters of the troops, to the cathedral, to the residence of Duke Michael. 
Even as I swallowed the last drop of my cup of coffee, the bells throughout all the city broke out into a joyful peal, and the sound of a military band, and of men cheering, smote upon my ear. King Rudolf V was in his good city of Strelsau, and they shouted outside, "'God save the King!' Old Zapt's mouth wrinkled into a smile. "'God save them both!' he whispered. "'Courage, lad!' And I felt his hand press my knee. End of chapter 4 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, and to find out how you could volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Prisoner of Zender by Anthony Hope Chapter 5 The Adventures of an Understudy With Fritz von Tarlenheim and Colonel Zapt close behind me, I stepped out of the buffet onto the platform. The last thing I did was to feel if my revolver were handy and my sword loose in its scabbard. A group of officers and high dignitaries stood waiting me, at their head a tall old man, covered with medals, and of military bearing. He wore the yellow and red ribbon of the Red Rose of Ruritania, which, by the way, decorated my unworthy breast also. "'Marshal Strakens,' whispered Zapt, and I knew that I was in the presence of the most famous veteran of the Ruritanian army. Just behind the marshal stood a short spare man, in flowing robes of black and crimson. "'The Chancellor of the Kingdom,' whispered Zapt. The Marshal greeted me in a few loyal words, and proceeded to deliver an apology from the Duke of Strelsau. The Duke, it seemed, had been afflicted with a sudden indisposition, which made it impossible for him to come to the station, but he craved leave to await His Majesty at the Cathedral. I expressed my concern— accepted the marshal's excuses very suavely, and received the compliments of a large number of distinguished personages. No one betrayed the least suspicion, and I felt my nerve returning, and the agitated beating of my heart subsiding. But Fritz was still pale, and his hand shook like a leaf as he extended it to the marshal. Presently we formed procession, and took our way to the door of the station. Here I mounted my horse, the marshal holding my stirrup, the civil dignitaries went off to their carriages, and I started to ride through the streets, with the marshal on my right, and Zapt, who was my chief aide-de-camp, was entitled to the place, on my left. The city of Strelsau is partly old and partly new. Spacious modern boulevards and residential quarters surround and embrace the narrow, tortuous, and picturesque streets of the original town. In the outer circles the upper classes live, in the inner the shops are situated, and behind their prosperous fronts lie hidden, populous, but wretched lanes and alleys, filled with a poverty-stricken, turbulent, and, in large measure, criminal class. These social and local divisions corresponded, as I knew from Zapp's information, to another division, more important to me. The new town was for the king, but to the old town Michael of Strelsau was a hope, a hero, and a darling. The scene was very brilliant as we passed along the Grand Boulevard and on to the great square where the royal palace stood. 
Here I was in the midst of my devoted adherents. Every house was hung with red and bedecked with flags and mottoes. The streets were lined with raised seats on either side, and I passed along, bowing this way and that, under a shower of cheers, blessings, and waving handkerchiefs. The balconies were full of gaily-dressed ladies, who clapped their hands and curtsied, and threw their brightest glances at me. A torrent of red roses fell on me. One bloom lodged in my horse's mane, and I took it and stuck it in my coat. The marshal smiled grimly. I had stolen some glances at his face, but he was too impassive to show me whether his sympathies were with me or not. "'The red rose for the Elfbergs, Marshal,' said I gaily, and he nodded. I have written gaily, and a strange word it must seem, but the truth is that I was drunk with excitement. At that moment I believed, I almost believed, that I was in very truth the king, and with a look of laughing triumph I raised my eyes to the beauty-laden balconies again. And then I started, for looking down on me, with her handsome face and proud smile, was the lady who had been my fellow-traveller, Antoinette de Maubin, and I saw her also start, and her lips moved, and she leant forward and gazed at me, and I, collecting myself, met her eyes full and square, while again I felt my revolver. Suppose she had cried out aloud, "'That's not the king!' Well, we went by, and then the marshal, turning round in his saddle, waved his hand, and the cuirassiers closed round us, so that the crowd could not come near me, we were leaving my quarter, and entering Duke Michael's, and this action of the marshal's showed me more clearly than words what the state of feeling in the town must be. But if fate made me a king, the least I could do was to play the part handsomely. "'Why this change in our order, marshal?' said I. The marshal bit his white moustache. "'It is more prudent, sire,' he murmured. I drew rein. "'Let those in front ride on.' said I, till they're fifty yards ahead. But do you, Marshal, and Colonel Zapps, and my friends, wait here, till I have ridden fifty yards, and see that no one is nearer to me. I will have my people see that their king trusts them. Zapp laid his hand on my arm. I shook him off. The Marshal hesitated. Am I not understood? said I, and biting his moustache again, he gave the orders. I saw old Zapp smiling into his beard but he shook his head at me. If I had been killed in open day in the streets of Strelsau, Zapt's position would have been a difficult one. Perhaps I ought to say that I was dressed all in white, except my boots. I wore a silver helmet with gilt ornaments, and the broad ribbon of the rose looked well across my chest. I should be paying a poor compliment to the king if I did not set modesty aside and admit that I made a very fine figure. So the people thought— for when I, riding alone, entered the dingy, sparsely decorated, sombre streets of the old town, there was first a murmur, then a cheer, and a woman from a window above a cookshop cried the old local saying, "'If he's red, he's right,' whereat I laughed, and took off my helmet that she might see that I was of the right colour, and they cheered me again at that. It was more interesting riding thus alone, for I heard the comments of the crowd." "'He looks paler than his wont,' said one. "'You'd look pale if you lived as he does,' was the highly disrespectful retort. "'He's a bigger man than I thought,' said another. 
"'So he had a good jaw under that beard after all,' commented a third. "'The pictures of him aren't handsome enough,' declared a pretty girl, taking great care that I should hear. No doubt it was mere flattery. But in spite of these signs of approval and interest, the mass of the people received me in silence and with sullen looks, and my dear brother-in-law's portrait ornamented most of the windows, which was an ironical sort of greeting to the king.' I was quite glad that he had been spared the unpleasant sight. He was a man of quick temper, and perhaps he would not have taken it so placidly as I did. At last we were at the cathedral. Its great grey front, embellished with hundreds of statues, and boasting a pair of the finest oak doors in Europe, rose for the first time before me, and the sudden sense of my audacity almost overcame me. Everything was in a mist as I dismounted. I saw the marshal and zapped dimly and dimly the throng of gorgeously robed priests who awaited me, and my eyes were still dim as I walked up the great nave, with the pealing of the organ in my ears. I saw nothing of the brilliant throng that filled it. I hardly distinguished the stately figure of the cardinal as he rose from the archiepiscopal throne to greet me. Two faces only stood out, side by side, clearly before my eyes. The face of a girl, pale and lovely, surmounted by a crown of the glorious Elfberg hair, for in a woman it is glorious, and the face of a man, whose full-blooded red cheeks, black hair, and dark deep eyes, told me that at last I was in the presence of my brother, Black Michael. And when he saw me, his red cheeks went pale all in a moment, and his helmet fell with a clatter on the floor. Till that moment I believe he had not realised that the king was in very truth come to Strelsau. Of what followed next I remember nothing. I knelt before the altar, and the cardinal anointed my head. Then I rose to my feet, and stretched out my hand, and took from him the crown of Ruritania, and set it on my head, and I swore the old oath of the king. And, if it were a sin, may it be forgiven me, I received the holy sacrament. There— before them all. Then the great organ pealed out again, the marshal bade the heralds proclaim me, and Rudolf V was crowned king, of which imposing ceremony an excellent picture hangs now in my dining-room. The portrait of the king is very good. Then the lady with the pale face and the glorious hair, her train held by two pages, stepped from her place and came to where I stood, and a herald cried, her Royal Highness the Princess Flavia. She curtsied low, and put her hand under mine, and raised my hand and kissed it, and for an instant I thought what I had best do. Then I drew her to me, and kissed her twice on the cheek, and she blushed red, and, why, then his eminence the Cardinal Archbishop slipped in front of Black Michael, and kissed my hand, and presented me with a letter from the Pope, the first and last which I have ever received from that exalted quarter. And then came the Duke of Strelsau. His step trembled, I swear, and he looked to the right and to the left, as a man looks who thinks on flight, and his face was patched with red and white, and his hands shook so that it jumped under mine, and I felt his lips dry and parched. And I glanced at Zapt, who was smiling again into his beard, and resolutely doing my duty in that station of life to which I had been marvellously called, I took my dear Michael by both hands and kissed him on the cheek. I think we were both glad when that was over. But neither in the face of the princess, 
nor in that of any other did I see the least doubt or questioning. Yet had I and the king stood side by side, she could have told us in an instant, or at least on a little consideration. But neither she nor any one else dreamt or imagined that I could be other than the king. So the likeness served, and for an hour I stood there, feeling as weary and blasé as though I had been a king all my life, and everybody kissed my hand, and the ambassadors paid me their respects, among them old Lord Topham, at whose house in Grosvenor Square I had danced a score of times. Thank heaven the old man was as blind as a bat, and did not claim my acquaintance. Then back we went, through the streets to the palace, and I heard them cheering Black Michael, but he, Fritz told me, sat biting his nails like a man in a reverie, and even his own friends said that he should have made a braver show. I was in a carriage now, side by side with the Princess Flavia, and a rough fellow cried out, "'And when's the wedding?' And as he spoke, another struck him in the face, crying, "'Long live Duke Michael!' And the Princess coloured. It was an admirable tint, and looked straight in front of her. Now I felt in a difficulty, because I had forgotten to ask Zapp the state of my affections, or how far matters had gone between the princess and myself. Frankly, had I been the king, the further they had gone, the better I should have been pleased, for I am not a slow-blooded man, and I had not kissed the princess Flavia's cheek for nothing. These thoughts passed through my head, but, not being sure of my ground, I said nothing, and in a moment or two, the princess, recovering her equanimity, turned to me. "'Do you know, Rudolf?' said she. "'You look somehow different to-day.' The fact was not surprising, but the remark was disquieting. "'You look,' she went on, "'more sober, more sedate. You're almost careworn, and I declare you're thinner. Surely it's not possible that you've begun to take anything seriously.' The princess seemed to hold of the king, much the same opinion that Lady Burlesdon held of me. I braced myself up to the conversation. "'Would that please you?' I asked softly. "'Oh, you know my views,' said she, turning her eyes away. "'Whatever pleases you, I try to do,' I said. And as I saw her smile and blush, I thought that I was playing the king's hand very well for him. So I continued, and what I said was perfectly true. "'I assure you, my dear cousin, that nothing in my life has affected me more than the reception I have been greeted with to-day.' She smiled brightly, but in an instant grew grave again, and whispered, "'Did you notice Michael?' "'Yes,' said I, adding, "'he wasn't enjoying himself.' "'Do be careful,' she went on. "'You don't—indeed you don't keep enough watch on him. "'You know—I know,' said I, "'that he wants what I've got.' "'Yes, hush. Then, and I can't justify it, for I committed the king far beyond what I had a right to do. I suppose she carried me off my feet. I went on, and perhaps also something which I haven't got. Yet, but hope to win some day.' This was my answer. Had I been the king, I should have thought it encouraging. "'Haven't you enough responsibilities on you for one day, cousin?' "'Bang! Bang! Blair!' Blair, we were at the palace. Guns were firing and trumpets blowing. Rows of lackeys stood waiting, and handing the princess up the broad marble staircase, I took formal possession as a crowned king of the house of my ancestors, and sat down at my own table with my cousin on my right hand, on her other side Black Michael, and on my left his eminence the cardinal. 
Behind my chair stood Zapt, and at the end of the table I saw Fritz von Thalenheim drain to the bottom his glass of champagne rather sooner than he decently should. I wondered what the King of Ruritania was doing. End of chapter 5This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to inquire how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Prisoner of Zender by Anthony Hope Chapter 6 The Secret of a Cellar We were in the King's dressing-room, Fritz von Talenheim, Zapt, and I. I flung myself exhausted into an armchair. Zapt lit his pipe. He uttered no congratulations on the marvellous success of our wild risk, but his whole bearing was eloquent of satisfaction. The triumph, aided perhaps by good wine, had made a new man of Fritz. "'What a day for you to remember!' he cried. "'Gad, I'd like to be a king for twelve hours myself!' "'But, Rassendil, you mustn't throw your heart too much into the part. "'I don't wonder Black Michael looked blacker than ever. "'You and the Princess had so much to say to one another.' "'How beautiful she is!' I exclaimed. "'Never mind the women,' growled Zapt. "'Are you ready to start?' "'Yes,' said I, with a sigh. "'It was five o'clock, and at twelve I should be no more than Rudolf Rassendil. "'I remarked on it in a joking tone.' "'You'll be lucky,' observed Zapt grimly, "'if you're not the late Rudolf Rassendil. "'By heaven, I feel my head wobbling on my shoulders "'every minute you're in the city. "'Do you know, friend, that Michael has had news from Zender?' "'He went into a room alone to read it, "'and he came out looking like a man dazed. "'I'm ready,' said I, "'this news making me none the more eager to linger. "'Zapt sat down. "'I must write us an order to leave the city.' "'Michael's governor, you know, and we must be prepared for hindrances. "'You must sign the order.' "'My dear Colonel, I've not been bred a forger.' Out of his pocket, Zapt produced a piece of paper. "'There's the King's signature,' he said. "'And here,' he went on, after another search in his pocket, "'is some tracing paper. "'If you can't manage a Rudolph in ten minutes, why, I can.' "'Your education has been more comprehensive than mine,' said I. "'You write it.' And a very tolerable forgery did this versatile hero produce. "'Now, Fritz,' said he, "'the king goes to bed. He is upset. No one is to see him till nine o'clock to-morrow. You understand? No one.' "'I understand,' answered Fritz. "'Michael may come, and claim immediate audience. You'll answer that only princes of the blood are entitled to it.' "'That'll annoy Michael,' laughed Fritz. "'You quite understand,' asked Zapt again. "'If the door of this room is opened while we're away, "'you're not to be alive to tell us about it.' "'I need no schooling, Colonel,' said Fritz, a trifle haughtily. "'Here, wrap yourself in this big cloak,' Zapt continued to me, "'and put on this flat cap. "'My orderly rides with me to the hunting lodge to-night.' "'There's an obstacle,' I observed. "'The horse doesn't live that can carry me forty miles.' "'Oh, yes, he does. Two of him. One here, one at the lodge. "'Now, are you ready?' "'I'm ready,' said I. Fritz held out his hand. "'In case,' said he, 
and we shook hands heartily. "'Damn your sentiment!' growled Zapt. "'Come along!' He went, not to the door, but to a panel in the wall. "'In the old king's time,' said he, "'I knew this way well.' I followed him, and we walked, as I should estimate, near two hundred yards along a narrow passage. Then we came to a stout oak door. Zapt unlocked it. We passed through, and found ourselves in a quiet street that ran along the back of the palace gardens. A man was waiting for us with two horses. One was a magnificent bay, up to any weight, the other a sturdy brown. Zapt signed me to mount the bay. Without a word to the man, we mounted and rode away. The town was full of noise and merriment, but we took secluded ways. My cloak was wrapped over half my face. The capacious flat cap hid every lock of my tell-tale hair. By Zapt's direction I crouched in my saddle, and rode with such a round back as I hoped never to exhibit on a horse again. Down a long, narrow lane we went, meeting some wanderers and some roisterers, and as we rode we heard the cathedral bells still clanging out their welcome to the king. It was half-past six, and still light. At last we came to the city wall, and to a gate. "'Have your weapon ready,' whispered Zapt. "'We must stop his mouth if he talks.' I put my hand on my revolver. Zapt hailed the doorkeeper for me. The stars fought for us. A little girl of fourteen tripped out. "'Please, sir, father's gone to see the king.' "'He'd better have stayed here,' said Zapt to me, grinning. "'But he said I wasn't to open the gate, sir.' "'Did he, my dear?' said Zapt, dismounting. "'Then give me the key.' The key was in the child's hand. Zapt gave her a crown. "'Here's an order from the king. Show it to your father. Orderly, open the gate.' I leapt down. Between us we rolled back the great gate, led our horses out, and closed it again. "'I shall be sorry for the doorkeeper if Michael finds out that he wasn't there. Now then, lad, for a canter. We mustn't go too fast while we're near the town.' Once, however, outside the city, we ran little danger, for everybody else was inside, merry-making, and as the evening fell we quickened our pace, my splendid horse bounding along under me as though I'd been a feather. It was a fine night, and presently the moon appeared. We talked little on the way, and chiefly about the progress we were making. "'I wonder what the Duke's dispatches told him,' said I once. "'Aye, I wonder,' responded Zapt. We stopped for a draught of wine, and to bait our horses, losing half an hour thus. I dared not go into the inn, and stayed with the horses in the stable. Then we went ahead again, and had covered some five-and-twenty miles, when Zapt abruptly stopped. "'Hark!' he cried. I listened. Away, far behind us, in the still of the evening—it was just half-past nine—we heard the beat of horses' hooves. The wind, blowing strong behind us, carried the sound— I glanced at Zapt. "'Come on!' he cried, and spurred his horse into a gallop. When we next paused to listen, the hoof-beats were not audible, and we relaxed our pace. Then we heard them again. Zapt jumped down, and laid his ear to the ground. "'There are two, he said. "'They're only a mile behind. "'Thank God the road curves in and out, and the wind's our way.' We galloped on. We seemed to be holding our own. We had entered the outskirts of the forest of Zender, and the trees, closing in behind us as the track zigged and zagged, prevented us from seeing our pursuers, and them from seeing us. 
Another half-hour brought us to a divide of the road. Zapt drew rein. "'To the right is our road,' he said. "'To the left, to the castle. Each about eight miles. Get down.' "'But they'll be on us,' I cried. "'Get down,' he repeated brusquely, and I obeyed. The wood was dense up to the very edge of the road. We led our horses into the covert, bound handkerchiefs over their eyes, and stood beside them. "'You want to see who they are?' I whispered. "'Aye, and where they're going,' he answered. I saw that his revolver was in his hand. Nearer and nearer came the hoofs. The moon shone out now, clear and full, so that the road was white with it. The ground was hard, and we had left no traces. "'Here they come,' whispered Zapt. "'It's the Duke.' "'I thought so,' he answered. "'It was the Duke, and with him a burly fellow whom I knew well, and who had caused to know me afterwards.' "'Max Holf, brother to Johann the keeper, and body-servant to his highness. "'They were up to us. The duke reined up. "'I saw Zapt's finger curl lovingly towards the trigger. "'I believe he would have given ten years of his life for a shot, "'and he could have picked off Black Michael as easily as I could a barn-door fowl in a farmyard. "'I laid my hand on his arm. "'He nodded reassuringly. "'He was always ready to sacrifice inclination to duty.' "'Which way?' asked Black Michael. "'To the castle, your highness,' urged his companion. "'There we shall learn the truth.' For an instant the duke hesitated. "'I thought I heard hooves,' said he. "'I think not, your highness. "'Why shouldn't we go to the lodge?' "'I fear a trap. "'If all is well, why go to the lodge? "'If not, it's a snare to trap us.' Suddenly the duke's horse neighed. In an instant we folded our cloaks close round our horses' heads, and holding them thus, covered the Duke and his attendant with our revolvers. If they had found us, they had been dead men, or our prisoners. Michael waited a moment longer. Then he cried, "'To Zenda, then!' and, setting spurs to his horse, galloped on. Zapt raised his weapon after him, and there was such an expression of wistful regret on his face that I had much ado not to burst out laughing. For ten minutes we stayed where we were. "'You see,' said Zapt, "'they've sent him news that all's well.' "'What does that mean?' I asked. "'God knows,' said Zapt, frowning heavily. "'But it's brought him from Strelsau in a rare puzzle.' Then we mounted, and rode fast as our weary horses could lay their feet to the ground. For those last eight miles we spoke no more. Our minds were full of apprehension. All is well. What did it mean? Was all well with the king? At last the lodge came in sight. Spurring our horses to last gallop, we rode up to the gate. All was still and quiet. Not a soul came to meet us. We dismounted in haste. Suddenly Zapt caught me by the arm. "'Look here,' he said, pointing to the ground. I looked down. At my feet lay five or six silk handkerchiefs, torn and slashed and rent. I turned to him questioningly. "'They're what I tied the old woman up with,' said he. "'Fasten the horses, and come along.' The handle of the door turned without resistance. We passed into the room which had been the scene of last night's bout. It was still strewn with the remnants of our meal, and with empty bottles. "'Come on,' cried Zapt whose marvellous composure had at last almost given way. We rushed down the passage towards the cellars. 
The door of the coal-cellar stood wide open. "'They found the old woman,' said I. "'You might have known that from the handkerchiefs,' he said. Then we came opposite the door of the wine-cellar. It was shut. It looked in all respects as it had looked when we left it that morning. "'Come, it's all right,' said I. A loud oath from Zapp rang out. His face turned pale, and he pointed again at the floor. From under the door a red stain had spread over the floor of the passage and dried there. Zapp sank against the opposite wall. I tried the door. It was locked. "'Where's Joseph?' muttered Zapt. "'Where's the king?' I responded. Zapt took out a flask and put it to his lips. I ran back to the dining-room and seized a heavy poker from the fireplace. In my terror and excitement I rained blows on the lock of the door, and I fired a cartridge into it. It gave way, and the door swung open. "'Give me a light,' said I, but Zapt still leant against the wall. He was, of course, more moved than I, for he loved his master. Afraid for himself he was not. No man ever saw him that. But to think what might lie in that dark cellar was enough to turn any man's face pale. I went myself and took a silver candlestick from the dining-table, and struck a light, and as I returned I felt the hot wax drip on my naked hand as the candle swayed to and fro, so that I cannot afford to despise Colonel Zapt for his agitation. I came to the door of the cellar, the red stain turning more and more to a dull brown, stretched inside. I walked two yards into the cellar, and held the candle high above my head. I saw the full bins of wine, I saw spiders crawling on the walls, I saw, too, a couple of empty bottles lying on the floor. And then, away in the corner, I saw the body of a man, lying flat on his back, with his arms stretched wide and a crimson gash across his throat. I walked to him and knelt down beside him, and commended to God the soul of a faithful man, for it was the body of Joseph, the little servant, slain in guarding the king. I felt a hand on my shoulders, and turning, saw Zapt's eyes, glaring and terror-struck beside me. "'The king! My God, the king!' he whispered hoarsely. I threw the candle's gleam over every inch of the cellar. "'The king is not here,' said I. End of chapter 6 Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.